Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Not many of us, not even the most ardent foodies, think of the crab apple as a fruit worth eating, much less extolling. But Henry David Thoreau saw something like the American pioneer spirit in this hard, gnarled, soured hunk of fruit. In his essay, Wild Apples, he celebrates the apple because it, quote, emulates man's independence and enterprise. Not many of us, not even the most ardent foodies, think of the crab apple as a fruit worth eating, much less extolling. But Henry David Thoreau saw something like the American pioneer spirit in this hard, gnarled, soured hunk of fruit. In his essay, Wild Apples, he celebrates the apple because it, quote, emulates man's independence and enterprise. Like America's first settlers, he goes on, it has migrated to this new world, and is even here and there making its way amid the aboriginal trees. He claims that, quote, even the sourest and crabdiest apple, grown in the most unfavorable position, suggests such thoughts as these, it is so noble a fruit. William Kerrigan quotes from this passage at the start of his fascinating book, Johnny Appleseed in the American Orchard, A Cultural History. And he shows us the man behind the myth, a man very different from the one we might expect, but a man who nonetheless seems like the real-world embodiment of Thoreau's thoughts on the apple. Born in 1774, John Chapman is the planter who would eventually become Johnny Appleseed. Kerrigan not only tells us the story of his life and afterlife, but also the story of the American apple, which begins, surprisingly enough, in Kazakhstan, and goes on to our moment of genetically modified fruits and heritage varietals. At the center of this story, Kerrigan shows us the journey of an unusual American for his time, and then the creation of an unusual and perhaps timeless American myth. Phil Kerrigan, welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, well, thank you, Eric. I'm really delighted to be here. So you are the author of a new book, Johnny Appleseed, The American and the American Orchard, A Cultural History. And it's a fascinating book, um, and I'm very excited to talk to you about it. But before we get to it, I was just curious, could you tell us a little bit about your background? What maybe brought you to this project? You know, Johnny Appleseed, it seems like one of those topics that you could get to from a thousand directions. And I'm just wondering about the journey that brought you to it. Uh, absolutely. It is, a, it is a rich topic that you can come at uh, from a number of different uh, directions. My own interest in it, I'm a, I'm a historian of, uh, of U.S. culture, and uh, I grew up in all over the country, but spent some of my elementary school years in uh, the Cleveland area, and first was introduced, like most people are, to Johnny Appleseed in an elementary school pageant, and uh, I left the um, I left the Midwest uh, and was gone from the Midwest for about 25 years, and then came back to Ohio to take a job as a professor, and uh, was looking for a topic that had uh, important regional meaning, and also a topic that uh, uh, I could 
explore my interest in the intersection between myth and history. So Johnny Appleseed kind of popped back into my consciousness, and I I remembered how I how I uh, thought of him as a child, and and became curious about uh, exploring both the myth and the life of the real person. Now, it's not every historian, maybe I'm wrong, um, that does research by bike and canoe. Yes, yes. I uh, I am a outdoors-oriented person. I like to spend a lot of time outdoors, and uh, I kayak and, and, and uh, hike and, and bike. And uh, I really feel uh, for this project in particular to try to get at John Chapman, who who leaves a relatively light trace on the historical record, that I needed to spend time going to the places where he uh, lived, where he planted apple trees, and uh, a lot of those places were along creeks in northwestern Pennsylvania and across central Ohio. So I spent a lot of time in my kayak paddling these these creeks and, and imagining uh, what might what they these places might have looked like when he was there. Uh, I, I, I could not put in concrete terms how that informed my writing, but it did uh, give me a more confidence uh, that I was uh, beginning to understand the person. Yeah, I, I find myself wondering, what would it be like to look at a landscape within historical perception? Um, and I hope you'll be able to perhaps tell us a little bit about that as we go forward. Um, this book... This book, I'm going to ask a naive question that I think the book answers wonderfully, but for people who haven't read it, and everyone should, um, here's the question I'd like to ask you. So we, we all know Johnny Appleseed, or we, we think we know Johnny Appleseed anyway. It's the kind of thing, you know, like Abe, you can give a shorthand like Abe Lincoln or, or Paul mm-hmm. Bunyan or Daniel Boone. Um, but why should we want to meet John Chapman? Uh, that is a very good question because Johnny Appleseed is is such a a, a powerful myth that he overwhelms the person. Uh, what we what we know about the actual John Chapman uh, is is just a, a bit of a skeleton that's been overlaid with with heavy doses of of, of folklore and tall tales. Uh, but my interest in John Chapman was that he was an ordinary American uh, who who was born about the time. Of the American Revolution, uh, and lived through the uh, the formative decades of the nation, and uh, I'm interested in him uh, as a, someone who's interested in in what historians would call micro history rather than biography, uh, taking a small subject and and using that subject to to shed some light on broader transformations that are going on in his society. Uh, Chapman did not leave us diaries. He did not leave us uh, extensive records. We, uh, But we can kind of reconstruct uh, his basic activities over his life uh, and uh, we, can u- we can use what we know about the times and places he lived to, uh, to sort of pull some meaning out of some very simple things that we might get from the historical record uh, about his life. And for me, this is a fascinating part of the book. And in essence, I think you're talking about methodology here. Yes. And the way that it works uh, when you're reading the book is that 
you kind of zero in on some facet of John Chapman's life. And mm-hmm. then there's a ripple effect outward. And suddenly we're talking about, say, the War of 1812, or we're talking about, you know, huge religious ideas that are showing up in the Midwest about the time that that he's working. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about how that methodology works and and how you move outward? What's the kind of warrant that you use, Um, especially when you don't have the centerpiece uh, where Chapman seems a slippery figure? Uh, Absolutely. I I, I think it's necessary to do that with a subject like John Chapman, but it's something I like to do. It's the way my mind works is just to, to... concentrate on on one small uh, historical artifact and 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 think outward from that so for example uh, one of the t- one of the points in John Chapman's life where we don't know a lot about what he was doing was when he was about 21 and he was in northwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, we have uh, we have a few historical records that give us just a few hints uh, as to what he was doing. We have a, a ledger from a dry goods store in Warren, Pennsylvania that lists the items he bought. And at first, such a small source seems uh, like it, it might not be able to tell you very much. But we can see that he bought um, a, uh, some cheese, and he bought some uh, some moccasins, and he bought some uh, uh, tools. He bought something called a spike gimlet, which was a tool I, I didn't know what it was used for, and uh, I've, I learned after doing more research it was a it was a carpenter's tool. It was used for drilling holes and things, and uh, I, I kept trying to figure out what he would be doing with this tool and I looked through lots of the uh, lots of the ledgers to see if anyone else was buying such an item and I finally learned that the Holland Land Company that was trying to settle people in those areas was giving people those tools as well as kettles and other things so that they could tap maple trees and make maple sugar so here he is in the early spring of 1797 purchasing a spike gimlet almost certainly he was using that so he could uh, participate in that to tap maple sugar. You also see in the same ledger uh, that he buys two small histories. We don't know what those books were, but in a ledger that covers five years of the most primitive years of the early northwestern uh, Pennsylvania frontier, those are the only two books that were purchased by anyone who who, uh, who bought things at that store. So it tells us a little bit about his character as well. Uh, I also found that I had to uh, fill in uh, the gaps by by finding out who else lived in the places he lived in uh, while he was there. So the book is full of other characters, full of uh, people like Cor- Cornelius Van Horn, who was another early settler in northwestern Pennsylvania and also happened to plant uh, apple trees early on. Uh, we, we learn about uh, a young man named Calendar Irvine, who was the not-so-successful son of a very successful American Revolutionary War general who goes out to northwestern Pennsylvania to try to protect some of his father's land and and redeem himself. And he writes letters back and forth to his father from along the Broken Straw Creek, the same small creek where John Chapman plants his first seedling trees. And while he never mentions John Chapman by name, he talks about the kinds of characters 
characters who are wandering across his land, these these rough and rugged and very poor characters who he's afraid of, who might steal his land claim. And, and some of the references as I read them, I, I sort of felt uh, he could very well have been talking and casting a suspicious eye on John Chapman as he's writing these letters back to his father. So building out from those the single source or the single piece of information we might know about John Chapman, finding out who else lived in that place when he was there and what kinds of records they left, what we can know about them also helped us learn more about me learn more about John Chapman. And just the the moment you're talking about where Chapman comes from the Connecticut Valley and goes west and ends up in Warren, the journey he makes there, it feels epic. It feels like something that could be a major motion picture uh, in the way you tell it. And I'm just wondering if, if you could tell us a little bit about his origins. Where is he leaving from and why is he making this journey in winter across the mountains? Um, a little bit about the backstory because his his origins are, are you go you go back several generations and his origins are, are quite interesting and not what at all what I expected. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's a classic Yankee. His his, his great 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 grandfather came over in the Great Puritan Migration of the 1630s uh, with the aspiration to own land and to amass enough land to to pass down uh, an adequate amount of land to his children, and then his children's children would repeat that. Uh, and uh, by the time they got to John Chapman's uh, generation, they were running out of land. In, in New England, but but that same aspiration, that independence, what they called competency, a, a competency was was a term they used to refer to uh, to economic independence, the ability to take care of your own needs. That a competency was associated with land ownership, but that became increasingly an impossible thing for for uh, New Englanders five generations in because there were too many people there. Uh, so John's father is poor and he's landless and he spends much of his life struggling to acquire land and and getting land and losing land and uh, and and losing land in Shays' rebellion because he can't pay the taxes that the state has imposed on his land. He has to sell off his land to pay those taxes. Uh, John then at some point disappears from Massachusetts and heads out on his own, probably at a very young age, because he's he's living with his father and a stepmother and uh, and ten and, and seven or eight and eventually ten half brothers and sisters in the small house, uh, and he disappears from the historical record for about six or seven years before reappearing in northwestern Pennsylvania. The source that puts him there tells us he arrived from northeastern Pennsylvania, from a place called the Wyoming Valley. And what we know about the Wyoming Valley in that time period was that uh, there was a war going on between settlers who had come from New England, mostly from Connecticut, and, and John's family at that time was living on the Connecticut-Massachusetts border, and settlers who were coming up from the Philadelphia area, the Yankees and the Pennamites, and they both had paper claims to the same pieces of land, and they were 
they were engaged in a violent struggle against each other. And the Yankees were getting the upper hand. And, and most people in Pennsylvania saw these, these Wyoming Valley Yankees as, as untrustworthy, as grasping, as, uh, as, as cheating them out of legitimate land. Um, John apparently spent some time in that Wyoming Valley as, as, as New Englanders and Pennsylvanians were fighting over that land and, and then decided he perhaps had enough of that and he was going to head west over the Alleghenies uh, into northwestern Pennsylvania, into lands that had till just a few years before been completely controlled by Native Americans. And uh, according to one of the oldest uh, stories of John Chapman that was told in northwestern Pennsylvania, uh, he crossed the Alleghenies barefoot in the middle of the winter. He got stuck in a big snowstorm, and and uh, and the snow was so deep, and he had no shoes that he was he he, he was trapped. And so he finally built himself a, a, a makeshift pair of snowshoes, and then descended into the uh, northwest to the Allegheny Plateau, and arrived to find just a handful uh, of uh, white settlers and a few Indian villages there early in uh, 1797. So. Um, that story is a very epic story, and one of the, the, the things I love about the story is that the people who, who preserved it and retold it never called him Johnny Appleseed. This was a story about a guy named John Chapman before he had become somebody called Johnny Appleseed. And, and so it's a, it's a kind of an urtext of the Johnny Appleseed legend. It's not uh, most of the stories that you hear later are, are uh, there's a lot of cross-fertilization. People, people take their own local oral traditions and then they mix in things they, they read from other printed sources. And it's hard to, to tease out which which story is authentically local and which one was borrowed. But that story of him crossing the Alleghenies is, is, a, is for me, a very pure uh, preserved oral tradition because it, it, it existed in isolation from the larger Johnny Appleseed myth that, that emerged later. And I think one of the things that you do so persuasively in the book is you take these moments that have become mythic and you start to parse out what could be true, what might not be true, where the the fabrication comes in. Um, and so, for instance, I imagine if we gave most people a true-false quiz and said, you know, somebody crosses the Allegheny Mountains in winter in bare feet, rugged yeah. American, fr- they would say myth, false, right? Yes. Um, uh-huh. but. Actually, you point out that, that this is quite plausible and uh, that John Chapman's life, he was sort of unshod. That's the myth. Um, but th- that there's, there's a lot of truth behind what this could be. Yeah, I think it. I mean, I think it is possibly true, and we do. We would see that story as as so fantastic that it could not be true. But this is an age when when shoes were relatively hard to come by. Uh, the 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 best you could, uh, the most common footwear would have been the Indian moccasin, uh, and many of people would wear those. Uh, but a lot of people in the warm in the warm months went with nothing on their feet. Uh, And that was true in the 1790s when John was a 21-year-old. And it was also fairly true in the 1830s and 1840s when he was much older. But clearly, John 
took barefootedness to a level that most of his neighbors would not take it uh, to because they all talked about his his barefootedness and if they spent we know that they spent some of their year barefooted they saw him as different in that they saw him as as going without shoes at a time when no sane person would go without shoes so so that he might have decided that an unusually warm late fall that he could cross the mountains barefoot and it wouldn't be a problem and then found himself uh, miscalculating and caught in in a, a barefoot in the mountains in a snowstorm to me seems it seems credible um, but the the larger issue you also raise is that with a with a story of someone like John Chapman where there's so many oral traditions and tall tales and such a lot of times we we have to be content as historians to say this is possible or this is probable there are a lot of things we can never say this is certain when we're talking about john chapman well, one of those facets is his character in all its richness, and I think you, you hit on all kinds of possible facets and, and how they may or may not be true. But here, early in the story, um, John Chapman's meekness comes up. I mean, we kind of get him in the myth as he's meek, he's mild, he has no self-interest, he's doing this charitable work through the, the use of the apple tree. Um, but given that there are all these land wars going on, uh, before John Chapman becomes Johnny Appleseed, you make some interesting speculations about how his meekness may have gotten in the way of him fulfilling this story of going west and finding land and making some money. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that we have to assume that Johnny Apple, John Chapman wasn't always Johnny Appleseed. He, he wasn't always a guy who had committed to this certain lifestyle and this certain plan. That I, I think he entered the West uh, in some ways as a, as a fairly typical young man who was going West in the, in the hopes of acquiring land and becoming a farmer and, and finding a wife and settling down. Uh, and that those things, for whatever reasons, uh, did not go so well. And he, he, he eventually settled on this different plan uh, that, uh, that kept him a lifelong bachelor, um, that led him to be committed to a sort of um, uh, non-violent lifestyle in a pretty violent place. I mean, there is there's evidence in, in northwestern Pennsylvania stories that uh, he dealt with violence. One of the popular parts of the myth that uh, uh, in the modern day is that Indians loved him and that Indians would look upon this, this man and see immediately he was a, a true and pure soul that uh, was you know, almost a magical powered uh, angel. Uh, but in fact, a lot of the folk tales from uh, northwestern Pennsylvania talk about John telling stories about his hairbreadth escapes from Indians who were trying to do him harm. Uh, so, so that part of the myth that at some point wasn't true. Indians saw him as another white man who was encroaching on their land and engaged in transforming it in a way that uh, was making their lifestyle more difficult. Um, 
I think he slowly evolved. I think there there must have been moments in his northwestern Pennsylvania uh, years where uh, there, there was a pivot, a pivot in which he wasn't going to follow the same path that most frontiersmen followed from the the single man who goes out west and starts a claim and then finds a wife and then has a family and settles down and becomes an agriculturalist at some point his plan changed and i think that happened in 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 um Pennsylvania. At some point in those years he was in Pennsylvania, he became Johnny Appleseed, even if people weren't yet calling him Johnny Appleseed. I want to circle back. You you mentioned the perspective of sort of the Indian vision of what John Chapman might represent, and you talked about how they would see that he was transforming the landscape. And I think that ties into one of the main arguments in your book about what John Chapman represents in terms of the transformation of the American landscape. And I, I don't want the interview to go by without people getting a chance to hear that, since it's so central to the story you have to tell. Uh, yes, I mean John Chapman is is part of a of a team of frontier superheroes who who domesticate uh, North America and 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 they're part of the American origin story. Uh, but the rest of that team of frontier sum- superheroes, people like Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone and uh, and Mike Fink and the and the thoroughly mythical Paul ben- Bunyan, each of these characters is involved very intimately in of in violence, violence against a- animals, violence against nature, uh, violence against Native Americans, and that's how they transform the continent. And John Chapman has always been this outlier. He is uh, a man who. Who's also engaged in the transformation of this continent. He's, he's bringing the seeds of a, of an, a non-indigenous tree, of an old world tree, uh, and planting orchards of apples, which will um, bring, he's planting new ideas of property ownership on the landscape. He's planting a, a, a new way to, to make a living from the land. So he's also engaged in that transformation, but he does it without violence. And I think that for many people, uh, that was his appeal. Uh, people who are more comfortable with uh, celebrating a, a nonviolent um, version of that transformation. Along the way, I think many of those people who celebrated John Chapman, it became very important that, to them um, to believe that Indians appreciated him and saw him as as uh, on their side or at least neutral, and that 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 he was he was he was not an enemy. Um, because I think there's some, I think there's some Euro-American guilt about this transformation, the dispossession of the original people. So to make John Chapman this this figure who who existed in Indian white worlds equally um, helped uh, make a kinder, gentler version of that story. Uh, but I I couldn't find really concrete evidence that John Chapman had a special relationship with the Indians. The the stories about his special relationship with the Indians were were very far removed from specific places or could not be connected to people who were directly connected to John Chapman. And the few stories that existed did tell of uh, him 
trying to escape Indians who are to harm him or Indians who stole from him. Um, and then, of course, in the War of 1812, when a war breaks out between white and Indian settlers in central Ohio, uh, John Chapman's uh, allegiances become clear. He spends a lot of time uh, warning white settlers of impending Indian attacks. And uh, But I've been fascinated by the idea that it's been important to uh, to many tellers of the John Chapman tale that he be, he be understood as a friend of the Indians. I, I even went so far as to send out queries uh, on an, on email lists, Native American email lists, asking for Native Americans uh, to tell me any any folklore or traditions that their peoples might have had about um, John Chapman, and none really came back. So I think that the idea of, of Johnny Appleseed as a, as, a, as an Indian saint, as a friend of the Indians, is, was a white invention for the most part. It feels like the work of myth there. Yes, yes. Well, I want to make sure your title is not just Johnny Appleseed, but it's Johnny Appleseed and the American Orchard. And you tell a twin tale. Um, John Chapman figures largely and wonderfully in the book. But you also tell a story that begins in all places of Kazakhstan. Yes, that's that's the origins of, of uh, the old world apple. And there are forests of, of wild apple trees in, in, in Kazakhstan. There's a city in Kazakhstan called Almaty, uh, which means city of apples. Uh, I really, I hope someday to go there. Um, but uh, I, I think that for me, the story, uh, the apple is as important to the story as John Chapman is. And um, uh, I, I, my starting point for that was uh, Henry David Thoreau's observation. He said in his essay, Wild Apples, that it is amazing uh, how much the history of man is connected to the history of the apple tree. And I believe that to be true. And I believe that to be especially true that the history of North America is very much tied to the history of the apple tree. Uh, and the apple has become, has throughout history served as um, a, as a, a symbol of, of cultural divides, a series of cultural divides across our history. Now, when Europeans bring over this cultivated apple and begin to to plant it in in, in orchards uh, on uh, on farms that are, are are mixed husbandry farms that they've got annual crops of wheat or corn and and perennial crops of orchard fruit and they've got livestock uh, this mixed husbandry lifestyle of staying in one place and getting all of your sustaining yourself from one piece of land was very different and was at odds with native ways of getting a living which involved some planting of, of annual crops uh, largely did not involve raising livestock and for for fruit uh, fruit was gathered. So from a Native American perspective, uh, a, a piece of fruit hanging on a tree or a bush could could not be owned. The owner of that fruit was the one who, who picked it. Um, so in the, in the very first contest between Europeans and Native Americans, the apple was a symbol of European conceptions of property and European ways of getting a living. And then as we move forward in time, uh, as Europeans begin to move into the interior, many of them uh, who are mostly living uh, a self-provisioning lifestyle separated from the market economy uh, grow 
apple trees from seed. You know, John Chapman's own trees that he plants. He plants from seed, which means these are, these are uh, each of these orchards has all the genetic diversity of the original apple, and that means an, an apple orchard of a hundred trees, ninety-seven of them, of them or something, have uh, have gnarled, crabbed, bitter apples that uh, you you wouldn't want to, unless you were Henry David Thoreau, bite into uh, right off the tree. Um, but those seedling apples had lots of uses for the self-provisioning farmer. They could feed uh, surplus apples to their hogs. They could make them into cider vinegar. They could make them into hard cider or or fresh cider. Uh, and the few trees in any seedling orchard that just by uh, by luck came up with with tasty apples could be used for fresh eating. Could be cut and dried could be used in pies and and they they met that family's needs very well uh, but the grafted orchard the, the all the varieties of apples that we eat today come from grafted trees you you perpetuate a, a granny smith or a honey crisp by by cutting grafts off of one of those trees and and and, and grafting them to another uh those were the only apples that had commercial value. So by the time you get to the 1820s and 1830s, whether a person has a seedling orchard or a grafted orchard uh, becomes a symbol of whether this person is mostly interested in a self-sustaining, self-provisioning lifestyle or more interested in commercial agriculture. Beyond John Chapman's life, uh, the apple continues to be uh, uh, a source of, of, of contested visions. Uh, we, you know, the organic apple versus the industrial apple. Um, that story is traced throughout uh, the 20th century. Uh, and then I, I think the next wave, what, which we're facing, is the coming wave, is the genetically modified apple that somebody has, has, has uh, proposed, uh, has developed a, a kind of apple that when you cut into it, uh, the slices do not turn yellow. They stay white. And uh, they're hoping to get approval to plant these uh, these special genetically modified apples. And there's a contest there between the natural and the genetically modified apple. So I, I think at every point in American history, uh, you can see uh, apple trees and, and contests about apple trees reflecting cultural divides in society. Well, the idea of an apple that does not oxidize seems to me something like the American panic against death. I don't know. Yeah. That's just <laughs> terrifying. I think you've yes, given absolutely. us a great answer as to why Johnny Appleseed is Johnny Appleseed. And as you point out in the book, not Johnny Apple Tree, because he was very much on the side of this wider vision of yes. the apple. Um, and it's fascinating the extent in the book to which you illuminate how something like the apple becomes a metaphor for uh, political and domestic ideologies. And so I, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about suckers, because it's, suckers aren't quite what you think of. Uh, yes, I, I, was, I was fascinated when I, uh, I came across these references to the rural transient pores as suckers. And the, a sucker is that, is that offshoot that comes up from the soil the, uh, around a tree that... Uh, 
uh, that you might have growing in your in your yard. And it and and generally, uh, a horticulturist will tell tell you cut those off. They're competing for for soil and water and light with the main tree, and you need to cut the suckers away to uh, to keep the the main tree healthy. Um, but in the in the 18th and 19th century, if a person had a natural tree, an ungrafted tree that just by luck had a really pleasant apple, one way to uh, to to propagate it was to pull those suckers out and and transplant that until it became a tree in its own right, and it would have apples that were the same. Um, but Benjamin Rush, who was uh, one of the founding fathers and a Philadelphia physician, wrote a lot about the problem of overpopulation in the East and how he was worried that uh, that that as as too many people lived in the East, this that farm size would become so small that nobody would prosper, and so that the uh, his solution was that the poorest and the laziest people they needed to be pushed into the West and, and so that the more enterprising could thrive in the East. And he compared this process of getting the, the pu- pushing into the West, the, uh, the lazy, the idle, the, uh, the 47% of, to, uh, he compared that to, um, to the suck, removing the suckers on an apple tree. Uh, the state of Illinois was once called the sucker state, and and uh, there are a couple of theories as to why it was called the sucker state. But one of the early governors believed it was called the sucker state because uh, suckers was a name for the for the poor that were pushed out of Virginia by wealthy planters, and that they were like the suckers on a tobacco plant that were removed to bring uh, back the health of the tobacco plant. So uh, when I when I came across this, I realized that you. Know, you know, John Chapman's family, they were suckers by that definition. They were people that were eking out this meager existence in an overcrowded East, and they and they were struggling to, to maintain a, a livelihood. And they were precisely the kind of people that uh, the Benjamin Rushes of the world thought, we need to push these people out West so that the East can be healthier. Um, and so Chapman and his family were suckers in, in my mind, and, and, the, and the sucker became a symbol of, of uh, a kind of a class of immigrant. Well, part of the story you tell, and, and the reason I think it's so rich and complex, is that you tell story, the story of the rise of the market economy in what we now think of as the, the Midwest and the beginning of paper currency, and you, you have a tale to tell about the, the Owl Creek Bank. Um, yeah. the, the vision we have of, of Johnny Appleseed is that he was kind of beautifically planting apples and letting people flourish, and off they would take their new orchard as he would go on. Uh, without a care in the world for himself to, to continue to create prosperity for the people around him. Um, but there, there's a moment in his life um, where he starts to get confused for what people were calling Yankee peddlers, and you kind of suss out uh, what his relationship is to the market economy. Could you tell us a little bit about how money was working at the time that he was doing his work? <laughs> Uh, yes, you know, the money in the it was a big problem in the early republic. How as as people became tied to markets and as people found themselves living in communities among strangers, uh, it, they had to figure out a way that they could engage in economic exchange uh, and they, that they felt confident 
with. In a small community where everyone had lived there forever, you could exchange IOUs, and the value of the IOU was very much anchored in the reputation of the giver. Uh, but to to engage in economic exchange with people who were strangers, you had to have something that was not tied to the reputation of the person you were you were dealing with. It had a, it had an intrinsic value, uh, but there was very little gold and silver available in Ohio in these years. So, a paper money became the solution. And uh, there was a bank of the United States that was issuing some money, but just not enough to meet the needs of of people in the interior. So, so banks started. State banks sprung up all over both chartered ones, ones that the state had sanctioned as as having uh, some some credit worthiness to them, and also unchartered banks. And there was also a, a huge problem with counterfeiting. A lot of the notes that were circulating in, in Ohio in these days were uh, were just printed by, by counterfeiters. From the perspective of people who were using them, all that mattered to them was, will somebody else take this note from me? Uh, and as long as the note continued to be transferable, they were willing to accept it. Uh, but Chapman was in uh, Knox County, Ohio, in the years uh, the, the 1810s, right after the War of 1812. There's a, a big wave of immigrants that are coming in. There's a big land boom, and uh, people are buying and selling land and goods with all of this questionable paper money, including these these owls that are produced by the unchartered. Um, uh, uh, bank of uh, Owl Creek, which is Owl Creek was the name of Mount Vernon, uh, and today is Mount Vernon, Ohio. Uh, and and ultimately, these banks collapsed. They they fell apart. They they didn't really have much backing to them. And their notes, at some point, people stopped having faith in them, and and very quickly were scrambling to unload them and finding no one who would take them. And um, John got caught up in that. You know, we think of him as somebody who had perhaps become immune to the market economy, to the temptations of of acquisition. But between 1814 and 1818, he started putting money down on land all across central Ohio. Uh, he was stretching himself way beyond his means, uh, and uh, it wasn't clear that even had there not been a financial panic, whether he would have been able to meet all of the payments that were required to keep that land. Well, this whole owl economy, this whole paper money economy uh, came crashing to a halt in Ohio in 1818, and in 1819, it became a national panic. And John um, lost, he had had uh, hundreds of acres of land that he had made payments on, and he lost almost all of it in the ensuing depression. And I think, for me, again, it was important to see him as as, as not this flat saint-like cardboard character, but a human being, and that human beings through their lives, you know, they're, they're tempted and they change, and their values change and their objectives change. I think between 1814 and 1818, John was at, once again saying, "I, I want to be." successful by the society's standards. I want to amass land and I want to become wealthy and here's this great opportunity I can't pass up. I think that when it all fell apart for him after 1819 and he lost all this land, uh, he may have then decided um, 
he wanted to insulate himself from that economy, and he wanted he, he withdrew from uh, his later behaviors. Generally, don't suggest a man who's who's seeking to amass wealth. He does buy land, but in almost every case, it seems that he's buying land to protect nurseries he has. Uh, in the early nurseries he, he he planted on land he didn't own, but now to do that by the 1830s, to do that meant that someone would buy the land and, and refuse to give you access to your trees. So he changes. He has to adapt to the new economic realities. But I think the, the Panic of 1819 and the Depression that follows it uh, fundamentally alters him. But it's especially interesting to me that those years right before it, he's not so different than his neighbors. He gets totally tied up in this in this there's money to be made here. We can be all become rich. You know, land is just gonna continue to rise in price. So 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 buy what you can and 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 you can turn around and sell it quickly for a profit. He's he's vulnerable to that whole dream, just as, as all of his other neighbors are. And as as you move on to the later part of his life, where where you do get something uh, that you you see is going to get transformed into a saintly kind of afterlife, uh, you manage to flesh that out in in the current contextual terms um, for him. And you know, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about John Chapman's spiritual vision. Uh, it has some interesting roots as well with the new church and the idea of a primitive Christian, which is very different from how we think of him as this figure plucked from Americana. Uh, absolutely. You know, John's religious vision was very important to who he became. Um, uh, and he's most commonly associated with, uh, with the Swedenborgians, who are followers of, uh, of the writings of a, of a, a Swedish physicist turned mystic who, uh, at middle age, claimed that uh, angels came to visit him and, and, and brought him to heaven and hell and showed him all the secrets of heaven and hell. And, and Swedenborg wrote volumes and volumes of rich descriptions of what of what the afterlife looked like but also uh, elaborate exegesis of the scriptures arguing that every verse of of the bible had deeper meanings than the one that was obvious on the surface and that he could he had a special ability to Interpret their deeper meanings, and that that he was going to help bring about a, a new Jerusalem on Earth, where all the churches would be transformed by his vision. Uh, Swedenborg was a. Uh, an a person whose writings mostly appealed to urban intellectuals. You know, he, uh, Benjamin Franklin was intrigued by Swedenborg's writings. Ralph Waldo Emerson was very intrigued by, by Swedenborg's writings. He called him, he listed him as one of the representative men in his essay of the seven most important men of the age. Uh, he was not a Emerson wasn't a convert to the new church, uh, and there were things that he that he thought Swedenborg was wrong about, but he admired some of his interpretive uh, works. Uh, John Chapman was this strange frontier primitive who uh, didn't fit the profile of a typical Swedenborgian at all. Uh, he wasn't urban. He wasn't middle class. He had only the most limited formal education, but he became a true believer in, in Swedenborg's views and spent much of his time and much of his money acquiring Swedenborgian tracts and, and distributing them to anybody on the frontier who would be willing to uh, 
to to read them and to listen to them. Uh, to to this day, the new church, which still exists, you know, uh, for uh, for the new church, sweet John Chapman is an important early saint of theirs, uh, and they like to celebrate his life. But one of the one of the problems with that is that. Uh, the way John Chapman chose to live his life, his commitment to frugality and living this most primitive existence, that's not in Swedenborg's vision at all. Uh, Swedenborg, in fact, said that people who deny themselves material comforts on earth because they think it's going to secure themselves a better place in heaven are the most miserable people in heaven because they resent all the people they see there who didn't deny themselves material comforts. Um, so John had some other sources for his theology as well, but the, the, the Swedenborg vision, Borgian vision was very important to his, him. But his commitment to primitive Christianity, to this idea of take no thought to your your food and your clothing, uh, and don't you know, and, and what keeps your life together. Just put your hands and put your fate in the hands of God. He he took that very literally, uh, and uh, in in a way that uh, his neighbors commented on it and. As the market economy brought more prosperity to Ohio and people found themselves acquiring more material goods and living in greater material comfort, John's frugality made him stand out even more. But he also, I think, while they, they, uh, his neighbors some told stories about him, kind of derisive stories about his frugality, there was a, a, a hint also of admiration that he became for them a symbol of a lost age that as much as they still they embraced modernization and the new material comforts they they worried that some old values were being lost uh, of the simple times of the frontier life and John became a symbol of that too and I think that had a lot to do with how people began to to hold uh, John Chapman in great affection because he, he was a, a symbol of, of nostalgia for them. Well, let's talk a little bit about how John Chapman becomes a symbol, how he gets transformed into Johnny Appleseed. Um, I, I don't often think of Johnny Appleseed as being a symbolic uh, battleground during the Cold War, uh, but you have some nice things to say about the afterlife of uh, John Chapman. Could you tell us a little bit about this arc after his death in 1845? Yeah, after he dies in 1845, you know, at the time of his death, uh, most of the oral traditions are still not in print. They only start to appear first in, in in local histories and county histories, and then eventually begin to make it to uh, to national publications like Harper's Monthly, uh, which is the the most widespread, uh, widely read uh, magazine of of the late nineteenth century. Uh, but he becomes uh, in the late nineteenth century championed by a lot of uh, New England reformers, uh, people like Lydia Marie Child, who. Um, who is a, a social radical, very committed to social justice 
for. Uh, she was an abolitionist. She was a feminist. She was a, a advocate of Native rights, but she also was a, a great advocate of charity and frugality. And and so she promoted uh, his story throughout the uh, the late uh, 19th century and became very important in shaping how people saw him and seeing his frugality as tied to his charity. Uh, and then into the um, 20th century, John Chapman continued to uh, have appeal to to uh, social progressives and social radicals, especially um, during World War II. Howard Fast, who was working for the Office of War Information, wrote uh, one of his first novels, a young adult novel, in which John Chapman is the hero. And uh, and and Howard Fast was a communist. He was a member of the American Communist Party, and he was uh, he was jailed, but and he was called before the House Un-American Activities Commission and uh, uh, after the war and jailed for refusing to give information. Uh, but he was the these um, social progressives of a certain patriotic bent loved John Chapman because they believed he represented their vision for America. And now in the Cold War, uh, the stories of the America's origin become important again. Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone and Disney plays a very important role in promoting those stories. Uh, and and Disney also creates a, a full-length animated film called Melody Time, which is a, a series of shorts about American folklore, and one of them is on, on John Chapman. Uh, but once we get past World War II and, and, and the Cold War emerges, um, the country is a little bit more nervous about social radicals or social progressives even. even. So uh, they begin to emphasize John Chapman's Christian piety more uh, than had than earlier generations, and also not talk about him as a Swedenborgian, not talking about him as a as a as a member of a a small subgroup of Christians, but as sort of a more generic Christian. Uh, I think also in the Cold War you get uh, David Crockett stories on and, and uh, uh, on Disney that are Davies fighting the Red Street Red Creek uh, Red Stick. Creeks while uh, the U.S. Marines are off fighting uh, the Reds in Korea. And those stories become um, uh, a part of how we understand the, the nation. But there is this other tradition in Cold War America, the tradition of the, of the Cold War liberal. Uh, and, and that tradition uh, leads to, to an alternative solution to the problem of the menace of communism, and that is let's, let's convince uh, uh, the world, that what we, we used to call the third world, the world not allied with uh, communism or capitalism, let's convince that third world uh, that our way is the best through generosity and through aid programs and through things like the Peace Corps. And John Chapman becomes very much a symbol for that Peace Corps approach during the Cold War. He's still part of the American story, but he's the alternate side if, you know, to Davy Crockett. He is, he's somebody at Cold War liberals are more... Uh, are more comfortable telling stories to their children about than than Crockett because Crockett really could, from a Cold War liberal's perspective, fit into the Soviet view of American history as a story of aggressive, violent imperialism. So, as the world's foremost expert on John Chapman and Johnny Appleseed. 
Who's Johnny Appleseed for us now in 2012? I think in 2012 he is um, he is a symbol of um, all of those organizations that are sort of pushing back against big industrial global agriculture. So he is a symbol of uh, efforts to um, to create urban orchards uh, in, and to bring communities together. He's a symbol of organic and small agriculture. He's a symbol of um, of get back to simple and local ways of, 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 of feeding yourself and sustaining yourself. I think that is where uh, people uh, that are the, the people that are drawn to him today often come from from that that live simple um, lifestyle. Uh, I, I don't know that that's the only uh, group that that ties to them. Uh, there are many people who also um, have since the eighties liked to present John Chapman as a successful entrepreneur, that he had this brilliant business idea that if he got to a place where he knew people were going to need apple trees and he got there before they got there, he'd be ready to sell them his product. And uh, and so for for some con- more conservative uh, Americans, his, his business skills are often promoted. But I, I think that view as is taking uh, currently taking a backseat to the view of John Chapman, the green John Chapman, the sustainability John Chapman, is the is the John Chapman representation I see most frequently in recent years. That rings very true to me as somebody in the food world. Uh-huh. So, so one last question about this book. If a, a history buff or a foodie tourist was to come to you and to say, I want to do a John Chapman pilgrimage, I want to go to a place, a part of the land I may take my bike, I may take my canoe, um, to somehow soak in the aura of John Chapman. Where would you send them? I would send them to the Broken Straw Creek in, in northwestern Pennsylvania. Um, I, 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 I think it's a, it's a beautiful little creek. It's a clear running creek. Uh, the waters come down from these high Appalachian ridges. Uh, it, it's, uh, it looks like a great trout stream. Uh, and while there is some development along it, it is is still relatively pristine. It is close enough to what it might have looked like in 1790 that you can imagine away the modern uh, uh, changes and, and and put yourself uh, in the mindset of what it would have looked like uh, when he was there. I think that of all the places uh, I've been to, uh, I felt the sort of strongest connection with John Chapman. Well, you've been thinking about and working on John Chapman since 1997. Yes, <laughs> long time. That is a serious <laughs> amount of work. Where are you off to next? What's your next project? You know, I, I, people have asked me this question in the last few weeks, and I've given several different answers. I, I, I had Make up uh, a new one for us. <laughs> okay, well, my, my latest answer is I, I'm not sure that I'm um, – I've, I'm done with apples. Uh, I have an idea of a book that I would call Apples of Discord, and uh, I would trace the history of the apple as a symbol of cultural divide over time. Um, so that that is uh, one thing that's on my mind. I, I have also um, 
had been doing research for years on another micro history that is about a, a, a privateer during the American Revolution. Very different, obviously, than the Apple book. But as I reflect on, I look at my at my office at home and I look at uh, the chapters of this book that were discarded. There were entire chapters I discarded and the materials that I didn't put into the book. Much of them were about the Apple itself rather than John Chapman. So I am toying with the idea of um, of giving the Apple uh, its own show and 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 not and taking John Chapman maybe it's mentioned in the book but but giving the Apple its own due and and doing a story on the history of the Apple in America. I think that would be a book that that I would certainly be interested in reading. I think just to to put it out there for listeners, the next time they're in Boston and look at Beacon Hill, that's the location of the first orchard apple orchard in America. Yep. I think it's a fascinating story and I hope that when you write it you'll come back and talk to us. Oh, I would love to, Eric. So I've been talking with Bill Kerrigan, the author of Johnny Appleseed and the American Orchard, a cultural history available at your bookstore and at your local Amazon dealer, which I guess is not so local. Bill, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Eric. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with William Kerrigan, author of Johnny Appleseed and the American Orchard, a cultural history on the New Books Network.